The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon for our talk on urine planning, immigration compliance. I have with me on my panel my two esteemed and brilliant colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm, Alyssa Klein, who's actually been with the firm for over 10 years, practicing as an immigration attorney, and Jessica Beaver, who's been with the firm for I think a little over nine years, close to 10 years at this point. So each year as we approach the end of the year, we want to take time to discuss and share some thoughts about the importance of compliance, both in the H-1B and in the green card context for all of you as employers and companies. As many of you are aware, with the continued increase in enforcement and spotlight on employers who use the H-1B program and the labor certification program, it's more important than ever for you all as employers to be sure that you comply with policies and procedures, perform due diligence, and maintain the required files, compliance and other files that Alyssa and Jessica will describe in greater detail because as we all know that for employers who are found to be in violation of any of the processes, you, we all, I guess, could face not only financial penalties and harm in terms of fines, back wages to workers, but also there's a risk that as an employer, you could be prevented from using the H-1B and permanent labor certification programs. So let's talk, let's start our discussion about your company's record keeping obligations for both the H-1B and the green card process. So with that, Alyssa, if I may have you just start briefly explaining the LCA public access file requirements, because sometimes I'm always amazed when I talk to a common employer and I'm like, of course you maintain your public access files and they're like, yeah, we're aware of it, but yeah, we need to focus on it or we don't have time because we're juggling other stuff. What is required? What is the requirement for such public access? Sure, thank you, Sheila. So in H-1B, H-1B1, or E3 cases, employers have to file labor condition applications, or LCAs. And whenever you file an LCA, uh, the employer is required to keep a public access or public inspection file. And each of these files is required for each LCA. Uh, Then there are also specific timelines for when they have to be set up and how long they have to be maintained, as well as what goes into each file. And so the petitioning employer must complete the public access file and make it publicly available for inspection within one working day of the filing of the LCA. The employer must maintain this public access file for one year past the final date of any foreign national that is employed pursuant to this LCA and relevant non-immigrant classification such as H-1B, or if no workers were ever employed pursuant to that LCA, the public access file must be kept for at least one year from the date the LCA has expired or was withdrawn. This file must be made available to any potentially interested or affected parties, including representatives from the U.S. Department of Labor, who randomly audit these files. So are you saying that if the empl- another employee comes and says, I want to look at it, 
the employer should be able to say, yup, here you go. So, right, so these are available for public inspection because part of the purpose here is to make sure that workers in the area of employment are on notice when H-1B workers and other such workers are being hired. Okay. So are there any particular set of documents that need to go into all of these public access files? Absolutely. There are very specific items that have to go into these files. First, uh, it's important to know that a copy of the signed and certified LCA goes in each file. Uh, and, you know, for a number of years, LCAs are essentially all done through the Department of Labor's online system, formerly ICERT, now FLAG. And uh, for these LCAs, the public access file must contain a copy of the certified LCA signed by the employer um, that is issued by the, the online system. Okay, and what about the wage rate documentation, Jessica? Well, I do want to just throw in a practice pointer, Sheila, that because the LCA takes a week to be certified by the Department of Labor and you're required to set up this file within a day of submitting the LCA, we do recommend putting a copy of the in-process LCA in the file when you initially set up the file, then replace it with the signed version once it's certified. So that's just a reminder to those employers out there. But in addition to that, you have to have the wage rate documentation basically showing the wage that is being paid to the worker. So if the LCA is for the single beneficiary and specifies the offered salary rather than, you know, a wage range, then the LCA by itself should satisfy the wage rate documentation requirement. Otherwise, a signed letter or statement from the employer attesting to the wage it intends to pay may suffice. Similarly, there is also the explanation of the wage determination itself. Right. So a lot of what goes into the LCAs is information about salary and wages. And in the public access file, the employer needs to include a complete and unambiguous explanation of how the actual wage for the position was set. Um, And the evidence for the wage determination is typically provided in the form of a memo that summarizes the system that the employer uses. So it can be a casual thing saying we look at education experience, we look at comparable data from others, we look at basically whatever the objective criteria exactly you know persons maybe gps credentials experience exactly Mm -hmm. exactly and in in addition to identifying how you initially uh, fix the actual wage you the employer should also explain how future raises will be determined such as having again a set process for providing employee reviews or on an annual or or semi-annual basis Um, Lastly, whenever a pay raise is given, the public access file should be updated with the information. Um, Now, what happens may happen less frequently is is a decrease in pay, okay? Actually, sometimes when companies have mergers or acquisitions Mm -hmm. or sometimes in bad, I remember in this little downturn Mm -hmm. in economies, they actually have the employees vote right. and saying instead of firing everybody, will to everyone take a salary. 10% or 20% right. pay cut? 10% is quite common. Actually. So that creates a more complicated situation for the H-1B. And if there is such a decrease in pay, then the employer may have to file an H-1B amendment. So before making any of those uh, salary adjustments, it's important to speak to an immigration attorney. And I would just say a practice pointer just coming from the labor certification perspective is that oftentimes when you're looking at a labor certification case and may need to close that gap for ability to pay and increase the worker's wage, you really have to think about the pay raise it's given and how it affects the H-1B in the public access file at that time. So in general, they say that if it's a normal increase progression, 2%, 3%, 5%, whatever the company is usually 2 3%, it's okay. But the more, the larger, the more sort of it could end up becoming like a red flag on, is this person really doing the same or similar job duties? And similarly, if it's with the decrease, if it's more than what was put in the original H-1B petition, I would be less concerned. 
But if it is much less than what was mentioned earlier, that could potentially be a violation of payment because you have to always pay for an H-1B worker the higher of the prevailing wage determination or the actual mm -hmm. wage within the company. So again, those are issues that as employers, sometimes when you're so busy, you obviously don't think of all of these things, but obviously as lawyers and interested in wanting to protect you and protect our companies who, who engage our firm, we obviously want to handhold and guide them with this process. The next issue we want to briefly talk about is the prevailing wage determination. How do you determine it? So the public access file must show how the prevailing wage was actually determined. If the prevailing wage determination by the U.S. Department of Labor through the SWA, the State Workforce Agency, or another um, you know, source is used, then uh, that documentation will typically suffice, that prevailing wage determination from the SWA. However, if you're basing it on other comparable industries, getting like surveys from your colleagues, from other companies, then you need to maintain all that paperwork and documentation. Uh, and also because now we're seeing that the state workforce agency sometimes can take three months or four months just to give you back a prevailing wage in some cases. Right, so the, the currently the prevailing wages from the Department of Labor, I believe are issued through the new electronic flag system right now, and that has greatly increased the, the processing times in getting those. I thought the whole idea of technology was to reduce the time, not increase the time. <laughs> you would think, you would hope. <laughs> okay, so next let's go to what is the information that needs to be included in the notice of posting. Sure, so the public access file must include evidence that the notification requirements have, have been met. If the position is subject to a collective bargaining representative, which is fairly rare nowadays, then a copy of the notice provided to the collective bargaining representative should be provided. But more commonly, where there is no collective bargaining representative, the employer basically is required to either post the notice at two conspicuous locations at the work site, or provide electronic notification to all workers at the work site in the same occupational classification. Just to be clear, a lot of the, the in the auto industry and a lot of the technical, like the mechanical work and the work like auto industry, as I said, and other major, the bargaining, there are unions and bargaining representatives. They're not as powerful as they were once in their heyday, but they certainly exist in certain occupations and professions. And so if there is a computer programmer or software engineer working in the auto industry and everybody has, is in a uh, union, then I guess you're subject to the union rules. Right. So I think with the Posting notification, it, you know, again, this is about how do you deliver the notification. And like you said, there's the collective bargaining representative, uh, if that's applicable. There's the physical posting, um, and then there's also the electronic posting, which Jessica also just mentioned. The electronic posting, though, it, you don't necessarily see the posting requirement satisfied with this message, with th this method often. Um, but if it is used, then uh, you need to, the employer needs to keep in mind that all of the relevant workers at the work site, whether or not they actually work for the H-1B employer, have to be provided a copy of the notice, okay? So where a physical notice is posted, as is more common, a copy of the notice and some type of documentation evidencing where and when it was posted would be enough. And for those uh, employers who place H-1B or other related workers off-site, it's critical to understand that the notices must be posted at the actual work site. So if you're at a third party or end client location, that's where it needs to be posted. And if the client won't cooperate, the LCA may not be able to be filed. 
Um, also, it's important to know that the government knows that many end clients do not cooperate, and this is something that they're looking into in, in their investigations. Oh, yeah. It seems like the government is more and more attuned. I've been seeing a lot of the times recently in the last few days of consultation where the clients are saying that they are having an issue where the um, employee, where the, the, the H-1B was filed for in-house location, but they actually never worked even a single day in the in-house because promptly on the first day that they started, they filed a change of work location to the end client side. And the uh, USCIS is saying, even though you were approved as a cap subject petition, we believe because there was fraud or misrepresentation, we're no longer counting it as a cap subject case, mm -hmm. um, which seems a little unfair because especially if the employer does it before October 1st, it shouldn't be a problem. It's The problem is when they do it after October 1st. Right. So whenever there's changes, it's important to understand whether, you know, whether or not the employer needs to file something. And then if they are making changes like this, what the possible repercussions are, not just to the case they're filing now, but to other cases. Right. And in addition, the foreign national worker should be provided with a copy of the LCA by the time the person starts working based on that LCA. And the public access file must also have evidence that this was actually done. What about benefits? And basically in the public access file, you also want a memo explaining the benefits offered to the workers. So for example, if health insurance is offered, time off, sick leave, all of this should be listed. And of course, foreign national workers should typically be offered the same exact benefits as U.S. workers. And so what we've seen in, I mean, there's, there's certain special public access file requirements. For example, if there's a corporate restructuring, a lot of time companies will merge or sell or buy or acquire, et cetera. Uh, if a company has undergone any type of structuring, um, then the company should add to the public access file a sworn statement by the new entity, the representative in charge of the new entity, the HR manager or the president, whatever, uh, agreeing to assume all of the obligations and liabilities, uh, especially the immigration obligations and liabilities associated that has been held by its predecessor in order for the H-1B to continue to remain valid. It doesn't have to be all of the obligations and liabilities, just the immigration related based on multiple memos and clarifications that we've seen from the USCIS. In addition, the employer must add a list of all of the affected LCAs, the federal employer identification number of the new entity, and an explanation of its new wage system if there's a difference from the previous wage system. And Sheila, I would like to let you know that sometimes we do have clients where this is absolutely the law and they don't have to file a new petition, but for some employers they may want to depending on how the consulate is reacting to certain um, new entities, for example. So I always tell people, you know, make sure you speak to your attorney because while you can just update the public access file, depending on the consulate climate, it may be worth filing a new petition that's in the company's name. I think even in that same memo, which says the situations where you don't need to file, and I'm going back 15, 20 years ago, the USCIS recommends that if the person, the employee, the H-1B beneficiary is traveling abroad and re-entering the U.S., it might be helpful both with respect to CBP at the time of entry and otherwise to be able to show them the latest H-1B approval notice in the correct entity's name. Because when they say, are you working with company ABC? And the person says, no, 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 I'm now with XYZ because of the merger. 
they may not know the rules. There's so much turnover with CBP. There's so many new inexperienced customs and border protection officers and inspectors that it's so much safer in some cases to actually have that approval. Though, if it's a merger with hundreds or thousands of employees, employers hesitate to spend tens of thousands of dollars on each case. When I advise uh, clients on this, I think it's important for the company to understand whether or not they're prepared to take over those obligations, first of all. And second of all, whether or not the, the corporate change would qualify as this successor in interest that does not necessarily require a change of employer petition. And then to come up with a, a plan for the company as a whole, how they're going to handle the... And there's the, not a law. There's no actual statute regulations. It's just been policy memos, guidance, a whole bunch of loosey-goosey stuff. Until now, they've been fairly flexible but in this today's current Trump administration era where everything is looked at under a magnifying glass or, a, um, or, or worse, under a microscope, uh, you know, we need to be really careful that, 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 as Alyssa pointed out, you know, would it cut mustard as a successor in interest? Because before it was almost like if I said I'm a successor and I say I agree to take on the obligations, they were like, we're not going to examine, we're not going to go look at the underlying documents, we don't care. But I'm not, I'm not sure what they're going to look at in today's day and age. Alyssa, let's jump to the H-1B absolutely, dependent employers. Absolutely. So H-1B dependent employers and willful violators, um, these are willful violators are uh, companies that the Department of Labor has found to be a willful violator of the program. And these companies also have additional documentation requirements. So if the employer has indicated an employee is exempt Okay, it must include a list of all exempt employees. Exempt means that the non-immigrant worker is being paid at least sixty thousand a year, or has a related master's degree or higher uh, to the occupation. If the LCA is not used for exempt workers, the employer must be able to demonstrate that. If the LCA is not used for exempt workers, the employer must be able to demonstrate that U.S. workers were not displaced. This applies to the employer's workers as well as secondary entities' employees if the H-1B worker is at another company's work site. I'm not sure I understand. That, right. So if I have my H-1B worker at another company location, then I have to make sure that I can demonstrate that U.S. workers were not displaced within my organization and at the actual work site where that person is going. Okay. Uh, additionally, they have to be able to demonstrate that they made good faith efforts to recruit U.S. workers, but that such workers were not available. This is not the same type of recruitment criteria as green card cases, as we'll get into later, but rather the employer is held to industry standard methods of recruitment. Because these additional requirements are associated with non-exempt workers, um, you know, that may be difficult to satisfy, it's recommended that these types of employers hire workers that are exempt. So that's the, the sort of will give them some little bit threat of protection here. Right, and they don't have to go through those additional steps if, if the worker is exempt. Right, okay. So what sort of enforcement trends are we seeing with the U.S. Department of Labor audits and investigations of pu employers' public access files? Jessica? So audits or investigations can arise unexpectedly. Um, generally, Department of Labor investigations are triggered by a complaint. For example, if a former employee who believes that they were not paid the correct wages, they could file a complaint with the Department of Labor. Um, this type of investigation can result in review of large amounts of files and uh, wage and pay history to workers beyond just records related to the complaint. So it's critical for an employer to have their files up to date and ready for review, as Alyssa well knows. And one of the things we tell people whenever I talk to them is be careful, pay your, if you, you know, don't withhold pay. A lot of times employers will be mad at somebody for leaving suddenly or not giving the proper notice, two weeks notice or two months notice or whatever they may require. 
but then they can't by law and then according to law just withhold the salary and there could be things that are not like an intentional withholding but perhaps just a misunderstanding of the wage requirements for h1b or ah. an lca worker and so that that is usually uh resolved with you know quality internal audits and investigations to review what the company's practices are okay mm -hmm. um, in addition to what jessica has just noted i wanted to add that that we do see companies being fined for these violations such as failure to post um, but beyond just being fined uh, also being subject to debarment which means that the company would be prevented from using the h1 and possibly the perm program um, when a, a company gets such a determination they can appeal these findings but it could be costly and um, not just in paying the fines but in retaining attorneys to represent them yeah a combination of fines attorneys the bad name and reputation that they would get among employee one b beneficiaries and the world at large about failure to comply and even though sometimes some items uh, may not be easily corrected, such as the posting did not go up before the LCA was submitted, a company can make good faith efforts during an internal audit to minimize its violations because this would also show the U.S. Department of Labor that the employer has made good faith efforts to comply moving forward, especially if it's done before the investigation. Uh, we do this all the time at the multi-law firm. I know Alyssa, who heads up that team, has said that a lot of times if you show good faith and you do it before the government knocks on your door, it often will actually save you time and money in the long run. So do those audits internally, whether you hire a multi-law firm or you hire some other local attorney or somebody else. Double check, make sure you are dotting your I's, crossing your T's, because an internal audit will save the company time, money, and headaches, um, and a name, reputation, and everything in the long run. Let's just now go to the perm retention of documents. So basically under the regulation, it just says that copies of applications for permanent employment certif certification filed with the Department of Labor and supporting documentation must be retained by the employer for five years from the time of filing. So this means, yes, you have to have a copy of the, the 9089, the actual form that's filed online, and copies of other supporting documentation, which we'll get into momentarily, remembering that not only can the Department of Labor audit before the filing, they can also audit five years from the time of filing. Um, you don't file the supporting documentation with the form because it's for, filed online. However, in the event the certifying officer notifies the employer that the application is to be audited, then the employer has to basically furnish the documents. This can be paper electronic. It's really up to the employer. So however you want to maintain your records, especially if, um, like we said, at this time of year, you're making sure all your records are up to date, but you're also looking at how long have I had this because then you can get rid of things once, um, once you're able to. So like I said, for the labor certification, it's basically five years from the time of filing. Okay, that makes sense. Now, other things to keep in mind is you need to keep as a, the employer copies of all applications, the prevailing wage determinations on both the 9141 and the 9089. The prevailing wage determination itself, any uploaded supporting documentation like wage surveys, and the SWA order, the State Workforce Agency job order. And there's actually this matter, matter of a katabao, 
Um, and, and basically the, the decision that came from Balk on that, Sheila, basically says while an employer is expected to maintain the documentation specified in the regulations, proof of the request and publication of a SWA is not required supporting documentation. So basically the employer is therefore not required to maintain such documentation. Balka concluded in this case that the employer's failure to produce a copy of the SWA job order could not be the sole basis for the denial. Right. And in addition to these other items, there are other standard uh, documents to keep maintained. Uh, one of them is tear sheets from the Sunday newspapers, which is proof of publication as required by the regulations, uh, the signed uh, notice of filing, the signed in-house media, uh, if available, and the and yeah, signed record of recruitment. Yeah, and speaking of the results of recruitment, like Alyssa was just mentioning, um, basically it's the employer or the employer's representative, not the actual attorney, that basically has to sign describing the recruitment steps taken and results achieved, the number of hires, and number of U.S. workers rejected, categorized by lawful job-related reasons. And to kind of go hand-in-hand hand with that results of recruitment are the resumes. So you have to keep notes of the resumes, who applied, and why any U.S. applicants were not considered to meet the standards of, you know, being able, willing, and qualified for the position. So there must be documentation of contact with any of the potentially qualified applicants. So remember, it's all about documentation, keeping copies of those emails um, and telephone logs and perhaps any notes if you did have to interview the applicant. Um, this routinely comes up in standard audits to not only give copies of all of your recruitment itself, but of also of all the applications and attempted contacts with the applicants. Okay. And there are additional forms, the three adi additional forms uh, uh, for positions that are considered to be professional positions that can be used, not they must be used. So, for example, you have job fairs that you can attach brochures advertising the fair and newspaper advertisements in which the employer is named as a participant in the job fair. Or, second, the employer's website, which can be dated. You can print out copies date, you know, the dates that it was available, it may still be there, but what if you've changed it or tweaked it or you have a new design from the website that advertises the occupation that was involved in the application. Next, you can have the job search website other than the employer's website itself, which can be documented by providing dated copies of pages from one or more other websites that advertise the occupation which, are, which is involved in the application. Yeah, and in addition to those three possible forms of recruitment, um, I'll go through some more. One is on-campus recruiting, which can be documented by providing copies of the notification issued or posted by the college's or university's placement office, naming the employer and the date it conducted interviews for employment in the occupation. There's also trade or professional organizations, and this type of advertisement can be documented by providing copies of pages of newsletters or trade journals containing advertisements for the occupation involved in the application for alien employment certification. Also, private employment firms can be used, uh, and this can be documented by providing documentation sufficient to demonstrate that recruitment has been conducted by a private for firm for the occupation for which certification is sought. Uh, for example, documentation might consist of copies of contracts between the employer and the firm, copies of ads placed by the firm for the, for the occupation involved in the application. And again, remember, we don't need all of these. We just need any three out of the ten. And so Alyssa and, and, and uh, Jessica and I have, are going through all of the 10. And again, when we keep talking about compliance, so you just want to make sure you're in compliant, 
your your you as an employer are complying with all of the H1B and PERM regulations, like the job fairs, like this, like the private employment, like the employee referral program with incentives, etc. Um, you know where the employer can document providing dated copies of employer notices or memoranda advertising the program and specifying the incentives offered. Oh, and Jessica, the others? Yeah, and so the, la the last couple, just at that list of 10 that Sheila was mentioning, is basically if you do choose to use the employee referral program with incentives, this can be documented by providing dated copies of the employer notices or memos advertising the program and specifying the incentives offered. Um, for the campus placement office, if you choose to do that form of recruitment, it can be documented by providing a copy of the employer's notice of the job opportunity provided to the campus placement office. Similarly, with local and ethnic newspapers, it can be documented by providing a copy of the page in the newspaper, often called a tear sheet. And finally, the radio and television advertisements can be documented by providing a copy of the employer's text of their advertisement, along with kind of a written confirmation from the radio or television station. So it is important to know that, like Sheila mentioned before, it's all can be documented. So these are just suggestions. A lot of what can be documented sometimes comes up in, in case law before the Board of Alien Labor Certification Appeals. And then sometimes it can also come through a Department of Labor frequently asked question. So it's important to know that as um, Balka case law changes or as the DOL puts out more frequently asked questions, um, the type of documentation required to be kept for each could be modified. And with respect to how an employee may qualify, obviously you look at the education documents, credentials evaluations, you look at the experience documentation, if state licenses are required, you mentioned the state licensing, licensure requirements, um, you may need to maintain proof of all of that because when there's an audit, we better have the degree certificates, the experience letters, et cetera, to show com that, they, that you as an employer has complied and that in fact the foreign national actually qualifies for the job which we claim why we're rejecting other people who apply for the job. What about additional supporting documentation? So a few of the ones may not um, really apply to our, our employers out there. However, knowing that if you do have a live-in household domestic worker, you know, showing the prior year uh, experience of one year in business necessity for why they have to live in your home, um, as well as special handling cases for college and university teachers, sheep herders, professional team athletes. These types of very unique cases, you'd have to have additional documentation. You also want to show why training is not possible to an applicant that applies for the position in a reasonable amount of time. So that would likely be with your resumes that I was speaking of, with kind of your notes from the interview as to why someone could not be trained in a reasonable amount of time in order to perform the job. And some people say reasonable could be several months, but usually it's usually at least six months or longer because if it's two or three months, very often the government says, really? Really, we're not going to buy that. You could just hire a U.S. worker and train them if it's a few months. But if it's more than six months, a year, two years, and it's you can explain why, because of how busy you are, what's going on, how it would really adversely impact the company, that, that's very important to show. Um, so next issue is the business necessity. Um, often if the advertised position or what we're saying we require you require as an employer is considered beyond or exceeds what's required under the specific vocational uh, program, the SVP, for example, a foreign language requirement, a combination of job duties, 
something that they think is like a red flag that the Department of Labor or USCIS considers a red flag, then you as the employer really may need to provide some type of business necessity letter establishing that the particular level of education or experience is required by the company or the employer due to its particular business requirements. And you, can, you need to back that up by the resumes of other company employees in that specific position to show consistency in the company's requirements. Other documentation establishing that the employer's stated requirements are within the industry norm should also be kept in the file. This includes job ads, possibly from other employers, alternate wage surveys, and Department of Labor publications, such as the Occupational Outlook Handbook. So what we've seen is that, I know a lot of times when we discuss it, especially with PERM now, you know, PERM, which has been going on for several years now, um, that you may not actually want to include or send in the business necessity letter with the PERM filing, but keep it in your audit file, and there's a lot of debate and discussion. Some lawyers send it in, some don't, but some feel like you don't want to poke the eye of the tiger by sending in additional information up front, but there are others who say, no, I want to send it in because I want to avoid the audit. What's your thought, Jessica? So since the 989 is, uh, is filed online, most of my employers, you know, are not sending documentation to the Department of Labor ahead of time. Perhaps if they had an inquiry on their prevailing wage determination or something kind of initially, um, we're not really seeing business necessity always asked for in the audit. However, when it's specifically asked for it, that's when we address it. So I think the issue comes more up when you get the audit, should I give them more than what they're asking? And that's something you should definitely discuss with an attorney, but usually you just want to give them what's being requested in that audit. Okay, what other, what other additional documents? So other, other issues that the employer should be prepared to substantiate are uh, alternate job requirements. So if they offer uh, alternative education and experience requirements for the same job, they may have to explain why they are substantially equivalent. They may need to verify and document what their actual minimum requirements are. And they could also have to uh, verify an employee's uh, experience that's gained on the job, um, which could be a form of a, a verification letter. Uh, additionally, a company uh, would want to keep company documentation in there, such as the FEIN, and then also have uh, information about the area and industry conditions for, for the entity. Okay, thank you. And so some of the final sort of topics that you'd want to think about having documentation for in your compliance file are proof of layoffs um, because the employer has to notify potentially qualified laid off U.S. workers and consider any of these interested former employees. There is a specific Department of Labor FAQ about this, so we won't go into that much detail, but just proof of that layoff documentation should be in your compliance file. Similarly, if you've checked that box that the person that you're sponsoring has a familial relationship or ownership part of the company, you basically have to have the documentation to show that there's no undue influence. Um, there is a, a case called modular container that basically has those factors, but you basically want to show that even though you're related, which... There is a Department of Labor frequently asked question about what is familial relationship, basically any relationship by blood or marriage. So um, that came out in the past couple of years, so you really need to disclose it. What if it. I'm the third or fourth or fifth cousin, uncle, aunt, anything? Anything yes. very yes. distant? Very distant. So, But a lot of times, even if you disclose it, if it does come up in the audit, then they ask for these types of documents that were kind of discussed in that court case, uh, modular container. So you can show, look, here's the company structure. Here's who the owners are. This person is so removed, they have no undue influence over the position. 
There are, you know, three other HR people that do the interviewing, hiring, firing, that type of thing. So really, we happen to be related, but I can't, um, you know, have that influence over the case. Okay. And then similarly, just documentations to support the prevailing wage determination. So if you happen to have any alternate wage surveys or anything, you'd want to put that in behind your prevailing wage determination. Okay. Um, so I know we're always mindful of the 30 to 45 minute time slot that each of you keeps aside to participate uh, and to take part in these monthly teleconferences. But one of the I thoughts that crossed my mind as we were talking about this uh, teleconference today with Alyssa Klein, Jessica Beaver, and myself, Sheila Murthy, I was thinking it might be helpful for you all as employers uh, to let us know if this topic was helpful for you or particular, feel free to suggest if you have a particular hot topic because when we sit every couple of every month or every couple of months trying to figure out what topics would be of great interest to employers we are trying to figure out what you may appreciate or need or need guidance or handholding with so if you want to send an email to law at murthy or murthy law at m-u-r-t-h-y dot com with a subject line teleconference and just say my suggested topic would be x or y we will then put it out in the next couple of months or if we get you know, 20 requests and we do it only once a month, yours may be after several uh, months, but we would really appreciate any feedback, the pros and cons, because our goal is to really empower, educate, and make you as employers understand what's happening out there, what we understand are the pros and cons and the risks, and with a topic like this where we want to help you comply with H-1B and PERM filings, so that you can be better prepared, you or your HR people, your immigration team. But at the end of the day, our goal is to empower, educate, and we at the Murthy Law Firm, uh, our final goal, of course, is to continue to fight and win for our clients, to challenge the government when we know that what they're doing is improper, illegal, or beyond the scope of you know, the statute or regulations and what we're seeing, unfortunately, today in the administration and to continue to educate and empower you as employers. So on behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, Alyssa Klein, Jessica Beaver, and the entire Murthy Law Firm team, we want to thank you for joining us on today's uh, teleconference, and we look forward to continuing to help you. Happy holidays. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.